Hello, and welcome back to Tectonic, a show in which we look at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm John Thornhill, Innovation Editor at the Financial Times in London. In this episode, we hear from a social media theorist who has made a study of the way we use photography in the social media age. I'm sort of building an argument for a more social social media, and I'm critical of misusing people's privacy. I'm critical of the focus on permanence. I'm critical of putting likes and metrics and numbers on everything, gamifying our sociality. If you had a conversation with your friend and everyone in the room scored every sentence you said, you'd have a really bad conversation. That was Nathan Jurgensen, sociologist at Snapchat's parent company, Snap. He came into the FT studio to talk to my colleague, Tim Bradshaw, about his book, The Social Photo, and about how the smartphone camera is changing the way we communicate. Nathan, thank you very much indeed for coming all the way from LA and Venice to chat with us. You've been studying the role of the photograph in social media and how we communicate with that for a long time. How do you sort of feel, how has the connected smartphone camera changed our understanding of what photography is? Or even what a camera is. Right. I think what a lot of people immediately think of when you hear the word camera is the lens or the body, the little thing that's protruding from the back of your smartphone. You know, most photography apps even use that in their icon. And to me, all that hardware stuff is only a small component of the larger camera assemblage, everything from the hardware all the way to the software. And I think really what's important with a camera, what makes cameras socially and culturally important and relevant to ourselves in everyday lives is pretty much everything to do with the software. Um, and I think in the last maybe year or so, people have started to come to terms with this. What the software is doing, it's at the internet connection. You can you know, put dog ears on yourself has probably changed the likelihood of you taking a photo more than maybe Apple adding an extra megapixel to the camera. Right. And so I think, you know, why would I ever take a picture of my latte? It's only because I have an audience to share it to. People take pictures today. Sometimes people say it's because cameras are smaller. We always have them on us. It's less expensive to take a picture. But that's been true for at least as long as we've had digital cameras. That's been true actually for a while. The reason why we're taking so many pictures today, the reason why we're speaking with pictures, the reason why photography has become so culturally and personally relevant has everything to do with the audience that social platforms provide. And that's fundamentally changed why we would take a picture and what we do with the pictures that we send them, that we share them. So that's what I talk about when I'm talking about social photography or the social camera. But the products that come from that, you kind of argue in the book, should be judged, might be the wrong word, but assessed or understood in a very different way to how we've artistically understood what makes, quote unquote, a good photograph or a good photo. Yeah. One of the frustrations I always had when I first started thinking about the role of photography in everyday life was how much of that conversation was dominated by professional concerns. You know, photojournalists or I'm an artist and how do I make money anymore now that Instagram can make all my pictures look as good as my fancy DSLR. And when we'd start talking about social platforms, well, how are artists using them? Is there some creative way to hack them or subvert them? And kind of lost in this conversation was just the vast majority of pictures being taken, which is just by people who don't consider themselves photographers. And they've taken that photo in order to share it, to speak with it, for it to communicate something about their lives. And that's the type of photography that I felt was a little bit underexposed in that kind of research. And that's what I'm focusing on. So what makes a good photo? What makes a good social photo isn't that it obeyed the rule of thirds or some kind of artistic question. It's 
social goods? Were you funny? Did you express yourself the way you wanted to? Were you understood by the person you sent it to? Were you respectful of other people's privacy? These are, you know, cultural and social questions that we should move from instead of strict art historical questions. Right. And I mean, you say in a way that the social photo has more in common with a sort of tradition of oral storytelling than it does with, you know, a picture on the wall of a gallery at this point. One of my favorite essays by Walter Benjamin is he has an essay called The Storyteller, where he describes the difference between experience and information. He's talking about oral cultures had these storytellers that could get at the experience, the what it's like of life. They weren't always factual. In fact, the story would change from storyteller to storyteller. And that's opposed to our modern textual culture, which is we're interested in information, the facts of the matter. So this is what you would print in a newspaper, right? And Benjamin thought something was lost in being so focused on facts that you've actually missed some truths that you could get at through telling stories. And I found that to be an interesting parallel with traditional photography and what I'm talking about with social photography, that traditional photography was often very concerned with the fact of the matter, that it accurately captured the photons of the world onto the you know photosensitive chemicals of the film. And that was a big concern in the use of photography and science, photojournalism. And oftentimes that is also the complaint about social photography. Well, it's not real. Everyone's editing their photos with augmented reality. You know, does the photograph have any relationship to truth? And I talk about the social photo as being able to express a different kind of truth in the storytelling sense that sometimes how you would edit a photo, how you manipulate it, how you change it can get at the truth of your experience in ways that are different and new that traditional photography couldn't. So I don't buy some of the arguments that social photography has no bearing to the truth or photographs aren't truthful anymore or accurate anymore. The other thing that came through to me from reading the book was just how persistently developments in photography have sort of challenged social norms or comfort in some ways. And that can range from anything from just the idea of people having cameras in public to the ways that people capture the image around them. One of the things I'd love you to talk about a little bit was this clawed glass from (laughs) the 18th century tourism, which is not something I'd heard about before, but sounds kind of familiar to the present day. So the clawed glass, this is, as you said, an old device, 18th century device. So the clawed refers to Claude Lorraine, the picturesque landscape painter. And so at the time, landscape paintings were all the rage. And landscape paintings were picturesque. And picturesque means they're more beautiful in their representation, in their depiction in the painting than the actual landscape itself. So in the mediation, there's this added element of beauty. That's the difference between beautiful and picturesque. And oftentimes you would use this device called the clogged glass, also known as the black mirror. (laughs) Uh, And it was sort of a convex shaped little pocket mirror. And the shape of the mirror pushed more scenery into a single focal point. So you could get kind of more scenery all in one spot. It was called the black mirror because it had this kind of gray smoke tint to it that kind of moved all the colors into a more simple palette. If you're painting back then, having many colors was expensive and it was easier to kind of change the color into one palette. And what I found interesting about that was how tourists at the time would have one of these devices, not because they were actually going to make a painting, because you know when they went out into the Italian countryside, they would bring that with them and they could see the country side as if it was a picturesque painting. And then there's this just kind of very delicious irony in that you would have to stand away from whatever you came to look at to see it through the mirror. And I just felt that that was an interesting parallel of, you know, literally looking away from what you want to see to see a mediated version of it that's more beautiful than what you're actually seeing. And I feel like that is sometimes the motivation of what happens on social media and photography. Photography pre 
internet, but also today we have all these manipulation abilities. And uh, so, yeah, it just felt like too juicy of a you know metaphor to pass up. Yeah. So the, the idea that people are sort of taking selfies of themselves by holding the camera in front of them with their back to the thing that they're there to see is yeah. actually a hundreds year old phenomenon in some way. Yeah. And that's not to say that the people traveling to the country, like, they didn't only have their back turned. They did enjoy the experience. In fact, they participated in the experience of that countryside in a new way. I don't want to make the argument that just because you turn around and you take a selfie with the Eiffel Tower that you didn't experience the Eiffel Tower. Right. Uh, and, you know, right now I'm reading this wonderful book by Monica Cure called Picturing the Postcard. And it's the history of the postcard. And all of these same, I wish I had read it by the time my book came out. All of these same critiques were leveled at postcards 150 years ago that, you know, people are only traveling to these places just to get the postcard and people only want the postcard view, not the reality. You know, people said that about tourist photos forever. People say that about selfies now. And so a lot of what I'm doing in the book is throwing a little cold water on some of the ahistorical, breathless critiques leveled at what people are doing with their phones. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of defensive selfies and food photos in the book, <laughs> which is fun. I mean, you don't seem to have a lot of time for the criticism of the selfie as this sort of narcissistic, terrible, you know, the, our youth is somehow rotting their own brains by taking too many photos of themselves. No, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I do find a lot of that stuff is a little bit hyperbolic. I'm very curious at the stakes that taking a photo, taking a selfie, being on your phone is given. And admittedly, I wrote the book mostly offline. Uh, if I've got Wi-Fi, I don't get any writing done. I am as annoyed as anybody when I go to a show, a concert, and someone has their phone above their head directly in my face and I can't see the band. I get it. I understand all the annoyances. I've never been hit by a selfie stick. I've heard it happens. <laughs> but at the same time, people don't go through that kind of standard etiquette, like, hey, turn the brightness down when you're at a concert. Instead, it becomes... Well, people aren't really having experiences anymore. People don't have identity anymore. People don't have selves anymore as because they're posing all the time. People aren't in the moment. They're not having experience. So everything that makes someone a human basically is being said is being reduced by digital connection. And that's what I'm interested in is why are the stakes so high where it's literally about defining who's more alive or not or who's more human or not, which I think is a really dangerous thing to sort of rank personhood. Because, you know, if someone's a human, it determines if you give them moral regard. You know, it's the most important thing you can do. And just how quick we are to absolutely write off someone's personhood because they're using a phone. You know, in The New York Times, they ran a, an editorial where it's just the most boring photo project you see today, where you just take a bunch of pictures of people looking at their phone. And then, you oh, you know, it's a kind of a Banksy, you know, sort of uh, what a horrible thing. And it's like supposed to be profound. And I just was thinking, you know, from another angle the opposite angle that those pictures were taken, you'd see some people on their phones talking to people, very likely talking to other people. And then there's this creepy street photographer, New York Times photographer right behind them, also being mediated by technology, literally with technology in front of that person's face, taking pictures of those people without their consent in order to run it in a newspaper. And I find that so disingenuous to the critique first that oh, everyone's just looking at their phones and they're not talking or living. I think they are. And also how that action of taking people's image and using that to profit is actually more like how tech criticism should be, 
we should be talking about the use of people's data. We should be talking about surveillance, whether it's government or corporate. Those are the critiques of technology that we should be having and not that that person on the phone isn't a real human anymore. So it's usually the tone of my work. And that's something I encourage. I think we should be more critical of the platforms and extend a lot more empathy to the users, which is what I try to do in my book. Right. So the phrase that you've used is digital dualism, the idea that there shouldn't be such a hard line that commentators draw or that we as individuals draw between our sort of online and offline experiences that actually you can be enjoying a concert while also taking a picture of it on your phone or you can be enjoying that sunset while snapping it and sending it to your friends that it's not such a hard line. I mean, do you feel like there's there are gradients between that that are healthy, right? You're not saying that therefore there should be no concern about people spending too long on screen time? Or do you think that actually, if people are just on their phone literally all day long, as long as they're doing useful, productive, fun things with that, that's fine? I'm not comfortable being the arbiter of how someone should think or talk or see. You know, Twitter has the conversational health yeah. movement. And to see discourse or social conversation, civic life, the public sphere, to see those things as having some objectively healthy state and that I am the doctor, that I can say what is healthy, like what's the correct way of talking, and that I should then create a platform that enforces that. I actually think that's a really scary view. So I'm hesitant to say what is right or what is wrong, like how people right. should talk to each other with or without a screen. That said, I do agree with what you said in that I think we should be talking more about the quality of what's happening on the screen rather than just the quantity. I don't think a number of minutes looking at it gets at really what we're interested in. But going back to digital dualism, you know, I'm not saying that Life as we live it on the screen is the same when we're living it away from the screen. I think it's very different. What I'm interested in is how what happens on the screen is real, how it comprises right. real people with bodies and politics and insecurities and vulnerabilities. Right now, we're having a conversation that's really highly mediated. We knew each other from the internet. We're wearing like, headphones and there's microphones in a studio. And, and I know this is a very mediated conversation, but even when you're at a cafe, even when you're hanging out, all of that is still mediated by the internet and digitality and other flavors of information, textual, oral. And so to me, those are the most interesting places. You know, the reality of what happens on the screen, the virtualness of what happens away from the screen. And, you know, that's what I like to focus on. And I think that is what drew me to social photography. I do think it's a very busy intersection of those two things. How do you think people's understanding of that varies by generation? I mean, is this just something that actually, as kids who grew up, I guess I count myself as a nearly 40-year-old on that, uh, as sort of grew up with social media now, as they become more comfortable with this stuff. You say in your book that the angst about the sort of alone together thing or the sort of how much time we're spending on our screen will actually look in a few years time like a weird little pocket that we've sort of grown out of. I mean, there's an understanding of the sort of language and literacy of visual communication, which people will have when they've grown up with it, that older people might, I guess, naturally panic about slightly. Yeah, I mean, I think for many interesting reasons, the kind of traditional understanding of photography as being for special and important moments, the idea that the photograph is something you would keep, it's like it's precious and it's sentimental. I think those are things that younger people haven't had to unlearn. 
And also just a lot of social photography is selfies. And unfortunately, our culture has told a lot of older people that their face isn't photogenic. It's not to be circulated. And that's a gendered concern as well. So I think there's a lot going on there. But I think you're right. You, you talked about a visual literacy. And I think that's what we're seeing happen. That's what we're seeing emerge. And new forms of literacy usually skew young. And it's not just social photography. It's GIFs. It's emoji. It's the way of being able to express what you're feeling or what you want to say visually using all the various tools that we have to do that. You know, I always think of social photography as you have this experience between your ears and you feel like I should be able to share that. I should be able to communicate that. And right now, I think the camera is one very interesting way that we can get at that. And so that's this visual. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Literacy that I have in mind. And yeah, you know, I don't think it is evenly distributed across ages. One of the moments that you talk about in the transition period, I suppose, is the sort of vintage filters that started on Instagram, but also even before that, another app called Hipstamatic that didn't sell for a billion dollars, unfortunately. But talk about what you feel now was going on then and what trying to make a digital photograph look like a, an old Polaroid yeah. was about. Can I tell like a little bit of a slightly long story? Sure. I mean, it's really what got me into thinking about photography. I'm not... I've never really been inherently interested in photography. I'm interested in the social processes behind it. So I was writing my dissertation. This was 2010 in Washington, D.C. And kind of over New Year's, we had two 30-inch, so what's that, a meter, snowstorms. And it just kind of blanketed the city, shut everything down. I had a lot of time on my hands then to think about and write about what I was seeing on mostly Facebook where all these photos being posted where they looked like they were very old. And it was coming from the Hipstamatic app. And I got very interested in that. And this sort of use of nostalgia in that sense. And so I wrote an essay about that at the time. And right before I hit publish, I saw that Instagram, you know, at the time was really known for its filters. And I kind of just threw Instagram into the essay. And then Instagram really blew up and the essay kind of became like an Instagram essay. But what I was saying then, and I still think now, is that we were first coming to terms with how social media had given this documentary vision like seeing the world as a social media post, whether it's thinking your thought as a tweet or seeing something and just being able to see the image that you would post. And it's very similar to, you know, 100 years ago, they would talk about the camera eye. And the camera eye is if you've taken enough pictures, you know what it is. You've taken so many that even when you have the camera put away, you see the world as a potential photograph. You see the framing and the movement and all these things. And I was thinking, OK, we certainly have a Facebook eye or an Instagram eye. We're seeing the world through the logic of these platforms. And that also means that the platforms aren't these passive repositories of our lives. They're actually in our consciousness. They're changing what we do and how we see, how we think, how we talk. And I was very interested in that. And I was also at the time, this is sort of the Facebook timeline. It was a very nostalgic moment for social media, I think, in general. It was really about creating this timeline of your life, this record of your life. Which was about trying to tell the story of yeah. your existence from baby to today and, and remind you of all of your old memories. And Yeah, it was a very kind of lyrical moment for yeah. Mark Zuckerberg. And it. It was, and it was, everything was permanent. And I think that's a very nostalgic view. I talk about in that essay and that's incorporated in the book, always seeing your present as a potential future past. 
And that was sort of this nostalgic vision that we were given. And so that was kind of my answer for why these photos were nostalgic. It was us first coming to terms with what social media was bringing. And it was kind of a like a halfway point to the social photography that we have today, like moving from traditional photography to social photography. It was kind of the halfway point. And then by 2012, it was Halloween 2012. That's when I first used Snapchat and Facebook's poke app. They, they copied it at the time. Rest in peace. <laughs> and to me, that was extremely profound. The idea of adding ephemerality to social media, to photography, first as someone who thinks about these things, well, I just had a bunch of things to write about. I mean, photography is almost predicated on permanence. That's what makes photography photography. And social media, I, I hadn't seen that. And I thought it was the most profound thing. And I saw I was writing about it, essays, academic papers, and things like that. And in fact, at the time, people at Snapchat were reading what I was doing. And I joined the company in 2013. I've been with the company ever since. It was very small. And what was really profound to me was what I thought was happening and what I still try to bring in my work at the company and it goes back to your point about digital dualism, is trying to make something that was more like this. When I say this, I mean this conversation we're having right now. When you have a conversation, it's ephemeral. By and large, well, this one's being recorded. Uh, <laughs> but uh, by and large, conversation and sociality is ephemeral. And everyone was saying, oh, this is so radical that these pictures are disappearing. It must be about secrecy and sexting and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and to me, it was very familiar. And what it sort of portended was the the idea of making a social media that wasn't necessarily based in permanence, wasn't necessarily about being a record and a document of everything that you're doing with all the metrics and sorting and likes and all that kind of stuff that you put on it. And that was a vision of social media I was very excited by and something that I've tried to work with Snaps ever since. But as far as the social photo, to me, that was also the realization of the trends that were happening and what made me create the thesis that's in this book and talking about social photography it is more the final point. It is more this conversational, you know, speaking with images. And so that's what kind of bookends the first half of the book. It starts with a hipstamatic and nostalgia and ends with the conversational, ephemeral social photography that we see today and beyond Snapchat across social media, things are moving in that direction. And that's, I think, really exciting to me and really shows how much social media is about photography. And I think every social theory today, if you have a theory about society today, should probably take into account social media and connection and phones, right? And any theory about that should take into account photography. So a lot of social media is made of photography. So that's my big pitch for the book. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the point that you make towards the end is that actually, in some ways, it's come full circle is that now that we have so many photos and that so many of them are either literally or effectively ephemeral because they just flow by in the stream, it almost brings back what we had pre-digital photography, which is that the really important stuff you know you've got to hang on to and you sort of pull something important out of the stream to hold up in a way that perhaps we didn't for a couple of decades in between. Yeah, yeah I mean, let's be real. Like the photos being posted to social media, whether they have a self-destruct or they literally disappear or not, they're going down the stream and really no one's looking at them. And I know kind of de facto photography had already gone ephemeral before Snapchat came around. So I think that is a worry is that you have this vertigo of images. You have so many. And how does an image stand out? And so that's another really exciting thing about ephemerality is by letting the everyday flow of life just happen and let it flow away, let it flow past. It allows you to take the special moments and stand them apart. You know, I think I talked about the Instagram stream as being sort of having a wallet full of dead currency. It looks really important, but at the same time, it's flowing past. So I think we need to have something in there that allows you to say this is special. And I know all the platforms have tried to work on that problem. 
the stream is flowing past as far as we as individuals and users are concerned. But there is the question that actually the machines are still looking at those <laughs> and pulling information out of them. And one thing that you don't talk a lot about in the book is to what extent those photos can be mined by machine learning or whatever to kind of understand something. I mean, I send all of my photos through to the Apple Cloud Backup or Google Photos or something, and it's convenient because I don't have to store them on my phone. But it's also like, okay, what exactly am I telling this company that I may not be aware of? But do you worry about that? I mean, in some ways, you push back on the sort of privacy panic as much as you push back on the screen time panic in the book. Yeah, I mean, I share these concerns and these are things that I work on internally. This book is written both inside outside academia, inside outside industry, for sure. Any place I can, I advocate for data deletion and you know, as strong as possible privacy concerns, you know, something that Europe is far ahead of the United States at. And in my book, in the first half, already I've made the argument I'm talking about the photo less as about information and more about experience, because that's from the perspective of the users. But I think what you're saying is from the perspective of the platform, Platforms, it's probably the opposite. The actual experience that's happening on the platforms sometimes is unimportant when I think of how YouTube does their algorithms. I don't think the content on the site is the top concern for them as much as it's the information. Being able to have the images, being able to have the data, being able to sell that data in various ways. So that's more something I take up in the second half of the book about privacy and the use of data and information. You push back on this kind of idea that we're sort of at the end of privacy in, in some ways because of how unreliable we have become as documenters of our own existence through all of this stuff. I mean, one of the ideas that you talk about earlier on as well is the more precise and clear and in focus a picture is, the less expressive it is in some ways. And actually, it doesn't work as well as a tool of communication. You still worry about privacy, obviously, as a potential casualty of all of this. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, again, uh, very supportive of, you know, much stronger, the strongest possible regulations around the, these things, you know, what data should be allowed to be kept and by whom, how is that data being used? And I think it's extremely important. But I don't think particularly that privacy is dead. Uh, is, is that exact kind of notion that everything is being recorded today, that I think both the utopians and the dystopians around technology, they both share that. And I think that seeds a lot of ground to big data analyses, the, the platforms to machine learning, data science, that everything in the world infinitely complex relations and social life yourself, that all of these things are being captured in numbers and data. That is both how this stuff is sold, how big data sells itself, and also how a lot of the critics frame their arguments. And I don't buy it. I don't buy that who we are and what we do is ever perfectly captured by data. I'm skeptical of anyone who says that they can do that. And, you know, I'm always interested in that sort of tension of what you reveal and what you conceal how you are able to express yourself, what you choose not to express. What's at the edge of the frame in images? What's between the posts? And as a sociologist, those are the things that you really care about, how people do this revealing and concealing, how it's sort of seductive, what you hold back. All of those things to me are like, that's what's really interesting about social media. And so much of our conversations, uh, we don't get at that nuance and that complexity, which I think is really rich and really exciting. And so these blanket statements like, People don't experience life anymore. Privacy is dead. Really preclude having, I think, a mature conversation around technology's role in our lives. I guess my main go-to that social media is sort of pushing us to this sort of performative thing that is somehow detached from real life is the Museum of Ice Cream. <laughs> I struggle with the Museum of Ice Cream a lot. I mean, it's like it exists purely 
as a place for people to go and take pictures of themselves. There is no actual content there. It is just there to be distributed and stuff. I, I, I feel like that's the kind of worst excess of that trend. I'm not saying that that necessarily means everything else, therefore, on the internet is the same problem, but there is obviously a kind of performative tendency that the ability to photograph everything and take a photograph of yourself maybe exaggerates and, yeah. and draws out of us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this goes back to all the conversations around the spectacle or consumer society, and there's always a new flavor to be able to give people that. Um, but I mean, at the same time, I think that those places are a place to hang out, right? Like, yeah, people take pictures there, but if I go to the bar and play pool, that's not a pool tournament. It's an excuse to kind of go and hang out. You know, right? these are places where people are talking and like, I don't know, it's not for me. So I get it. Like, I don't want to go to it. So like, my gut is agreeing with you. But at the same time, I don't think it's the end of the world. I'm a little bit worried about why people are so offended. But I mean, it's not for you. Don't go. Sure. Yeah, no, that's a fair point. And I haven't. So I guess <laughs> I okay. also don't know what I'm talking yeah, about because I've it's never okay. really been. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I'm sort of curious about a little bit, when you first started to work at Snapchat in 2013, it felt very much like an outlier because of that ephemeral approach and the disappearing kind of messages approach and was kind of dismissed by a lot of people for that. And whatever the outlook for the stock price or the business, which obviously as an employee, you're probably not going to comment on, but the ideas then sort of five, six, seven years later feel like they've really crossed over into the mainstream of the debate about social media. And Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is now saying actually privacy is the most important thing rather than privacy is dead, which is what he put on the slide at their conferences 10 years ago. I mean, is that good or, I mean, do you think it's genuine? I'm most interested in the practices of social photography. I'm a sociologist and, you know, in my book, if you're looking for news in there, uh, you'll probably be disappointed. I don't care that much about Instagram. I care about identity or fashion. I don't care about Snapchat as much as I care about ephemerality. That's sort of the focus of the book. And also I'm advocating for a set of design principles. Uh, that's kind of implicit throughout the book of how I think a lot of social media is designed to be very antisocial and how it can be designed to be very social. And I do think that there's room for both. I don't think technology is good or bad. And there's one platform that's good and one platform is bad. I don't think that. So I'm sort of building an argument for a more social social media. And I'm critical of misusing people's privacy. I'm critical of the focus on permanence. I'm critical of putting likes and metrics and numbers on everything, gamifying or sociality. If you had a conversation with your friend and everyone in the room scored every sentence you said, you'd have a really bad conversation, which is how Twitter is designed. And I'm going to advocate for what I'm going to advocate for. And at Snap, it's that's what we do. And it, that's really fun. That's really exciting. And if other platforms are going to do that, that's awesome. <laughs> like I, I, That's what I want. I'm advocating for these things and how it plays out with the stock prices and valuations and this and that. I don't like you're not going to find any of that stuff in the book because honestly, I don't care enough to talk about it well. And I don't give you a lot of numbers. There isn't a lot of more photos were taken this year than in the 19th century. I, that sort of newsy focus on the specific platforms and gadgets isn't really what I do. I'm really interested in these social practices and uh, how we can design these platforms to give us the best possible social experience. Given how much photography has changed in just the last decades and what we kind of understand by this because of the rise of the smartphone, do you think that was an exceptional period or do you think it's going to keep on changing as quickly and we need you know, <laughs> more, more books written more frequently like yours to keep up? Yeah, more books by me uh, and, and, uh, the, and books that I agree with and like uh, should definitely be written. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, I drew a very tight 
square around the scope of my project, social photography. And since writing this, you know, the explosion in so many different ways of visually capturing and speaking about our world are emerging. And hopefully these are projects for the future from video to augmented reality to all these different ways that people are expressing themselves visually. You have this thing going on between your ears and you want to express it and you have this sort of visual literacy to be able to do so. And I think that stuff is really exciting. And I hope that what I've done in the book is lay some very abstract principles some groundwork that we can apply to the various things that are coming down the line. I hope maybe my next project is going to be about augmented reality. I'm very excited about that, and I think it's going to propel a lot of more of these conversations about what is truth, what is reality. So it'll be new, it'll be exciting, but it'll also be familiar. If everyone's talking about what is truth and what is reality, well, that makes it like photography for its whole history. That's been the central question throughout the history of photography, uh, and honestly, through the history of modernity. So it'll be new and exciting, but at the end of the day, it'll be familiar at the same time. Great. Nathan, thanks so much for chatting. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Next week, we hear from John Brown, former head of BP, on engineering and the future of civilization. We welcome comments and suggestions from listeners, so please email us at tectonic at ft.com and let us know what you think of the show. Tectonic is produced by Fiona Simon.